Production support for Noon Edition comes from Smithville. Fiber Internet, streaming TV, home security, and automation in southern Indiana. More information at smithville.com. And from the Herald Times, featuring coverage of local news, entertainment, and sports. In print at heraldtimesonline.com and on your mobile device. And from the Bloomington Health Foundation, partnering with local organizations and citizens to invest in programs that address our community's health needs. Bloomington Health Foundation, improving health and well-being takes a community. More at bloomhf.org. Hello and welcome to Noon Edition. I'm Sarah Whitmire. Bob Salzberg is out today, so Joe Wren is co-hosting with me. According to the American Foundation for Suicide Prevention, suicide's the 10th leading cause of death in the U.S. Since 1999, suicide rates in the U.S. have increased 33%, with some of the largest increases seen in younger age groups. Today, we're going to be talking about mental health and suicide. You can follow us on Twitter at Noon Edition or join us on air at 812-855-0811. We have a great lineup of guests today. We have Jason Murray with Family and Social Services Administration Statewide Suicide Prevention. He's the coordinator there. Jessica Herzog is with Indiana Youth Services. She's the Reasons Region 6 Coalition Coordinator. Brad Stepp is a staff psychologist at Indiana University's Counseling and Psychological Services. And David Radley is a senior scientist at the Commonwealth Fund. Thank you all for being here today. Oh, thank, thank you. you. Thanks. Thank you. Jason, um, let's just start with you, with your role at FSSA. If you can talk about what your role is in suicide prevention in the state. Yeah, certainly. Uh, but before we get started, I'd certainly want to reach out to our listeners uh, with regards to some very important resources. So we're going to talk about what some would say is a hard subject, suicide prevention, um, and just suicide in general. But it's a very important subject, and it's one that's really um, captivated our state, and not just our state, but our nation. So um, if you're having thoughts of, of taking your own life, if you're in crisis, I'd ask you to reach out to 1-800-273-8255. That is the National Suicide Prevention Lifeline. However, if you would rather text than talk to someone, I'd ask you that you text the letters I-N, as in the abbreviation of Indiana, to 741-741. That is the crisis text line, and a crisis helper will be able to take your text. So going back to your question, uh, the role of the statewide suicide prevention coordinator is really laid out in HEA 1430. It's a House Enrolled Act 1430 that was passed in 2017. Created my position. Um, if you're an educator, you're familiar with the two hours of in-person suicide prevention training that you're now required to have for grades K at 5 through uh, 12 in order to be a licensed educator here in the state of Indiana. That's part of that legislation as well. Um, but my goal is to uh, develop a framework or plan, which we have done, uh, with community partners across the state. So not so much of a state mandate. This is what needs to be done to, pre- to prevent suicide and to save lives and to delete the stigma of mental health services. Um, but looking at what do communities need, because every community is different, and how is it that we as a state can provide them resources to get that done? And it's very difficult if we're going to talk about youth suicide that we don't have a youth in the conversation. Um, and so it's important that we have all the right people at the table. Um, there's more. Than, there's about 23 active coalitions across the state as Indiana Suicide Prevention Coalitions. Um, we have a great organization called ISPNAC, which stands for the Indiana Suicide Prevention Network Advisory Council, which is made up of partners from all across the state, from Evansville, South Bend, uh, Richmond, Indianapolis, even Jefferson County, so Madison, Indiana, um, all come together and talk about what is it that we can do in our communities. And that's, so that's, a, that's a new position, 2017, so it's only been around a couple of years. Yeah, this is uh, coming in July, actually, July July 1st um, would be two years with the state. However, I came in on the state in February of 2018. So I've been here about uh, a mm-hmm. year and a half as a state employee. I've been the statewide suicide prevention coordinator for almost two years now. Okay. Okay. Brad, can you talk about your work at CAPS? Because you're, you're working exclusively with students or young Yeah, people? exclusively with students at Indiana University. So CAPS provides a variety of services to IU students and faculty and staff consultations. So with students, we provide individual therapy, couples therapy, group therapy, but we also provide a wide range of workshops for students on campus. So we're out on campus when we're not working with students directly in the health center. Okay. 
And Jessica, you're with Indiana Youth Services. So let's talk a little bit about your organization and the services you provide. Yeah, absolutely. So Indiana Youth Services Association is a membership organization that's basically comprised of 32 different youth serving bureaus across the state. Um, And we have many different programs. The program that I mainly focus on is the Indiana Trafficking Victims Assistance Program, which focuses on raising awareness for human trafficking. We also have Safe Place. So if you've ever seen those yellow Safe Place signs around different cities, that is focused so that youth have a safe place to go if they are ever in crisis and they need to be connected with services. Um, We also have different things like the journey, which focuses on professional development with youth serving organizations. Um, And we also have good decisions, which is really important because that focuses on the lifeline uh, lifeline law in Indiana, which educates about underage drinking, and it really encourages different youth to call for medical assistance if they're ever in a situation where a friend is in trouble or if they're in trouble with underage drinking. So I think that although we have several different programs that might not necessarily focus directly on suicide, they really buffer the risk against suicide for a lot of our youth uh, because we're helping to provide those protective factors. We're helping to provide those support systems for a lot of youth in our state. So I think that's really something important that Indiana Youth Services Association is focused on. Mm-hmm. And David, you're with the Commonwealth Fund, and some of those numbers we were talking about earlier, those came from a recent report that your organization did Can you talk a little bit about just the scale of the problem here in Indiana? Um, Absolutely. Um, Real real quick, though, let me just say a little bit about the Commonwealth Fund. Um, We're a philanthropic foundation uh, whose mission is to support a high-performing health system, um, sort of in the broadest sense, uh, focusing specifically on vulnerable populations. But, um, you know, we focus on health care access, health care quality, health care outcomes, um, and, and of course, suicide and, 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 and deaths from from other uh, types of factors, you know, are, are a big part of, of what we study. Um, each year, we report what we call our, our state scorecard, where we we take a look at health system performance in all 50 states um, and the British, uh, the District of Columbia. Um, and, and again, we're looking at, at the, the health performance in these states broadly for you know all you know sort of all aspects of, of healthcare, again, from access and quality and outcomes. Um, what we find nationally is that deaths from suicide, alcohol, and drugs, they're, they're up nationally, they're up in every state, um, and, and they're, they're up in Indiana. Um, you know, states really are losing ground when it comes from deaths from, from these three conditions. If we look back to 2005, um, we saw that there was no state that actually saw their rates from, from suicide deaths or alcohol-related deaths or drug-related deaths. There was no states where, where, where deaths from those conditions went down. And, in fact, every single state saw an increase of at least 3%. Um, the, the biggest increases nationally have been in deaths related to drug overdose, um, driven largely by the opioid epidemic. Um, between 2005 and 2017, drug overdose deaths are up 115% nationally, so that's more than doubled uh, in those 12 years. Um, in Indiana, deaths from drug overdose between 2005 and 2017 tripled, um, so uh, they went up about 200%. Um, deaths from suicide in Indiana between 2005 and 2017, they're up 38%, which is, um, you know, not as high as drug overdose deaths, fortunately, but still uh, substantially higher than than the national average of a 28% increase over that same time period. 38%. Jason, what do you think is contributing? Uh, so recently, one of the things that I think is a contributor is uh, we do have an Indiana violent death reporting system or violent death reporting system um, through some funding uh, through SAMHSA. Uh, originally, it's my understanding, I believe only 27 states in the country had this reporting system. Now all states in the country, all 50 states, have the reporting system. And what initially would happen would a coroner's report would be submitted to the Indiana violent death reporting system and then the way that the, the manner of the death would be recorded. Stigma is our biggest is, is, is our biggest issue when it comes to mental health services, when it comes to suicide, and really bringing awareness. So potentially something that's marked as an accidental death uh, could could have been a suicide, correct? So what what ended up happening? So what we do now is we request a police report as well, and so when those two things don't mirror up, and the police report 
identifies that this was a suicide, we can at least record it that way. How it's published in the local paper, that's very different. We are a home rule state. Coroners for every county are elected. And the coroner is usually someone that knows everybody within within the county right, that they serve. And they went to school with folks. And in our rural counties, usually it's the only mortuary uh, mortician that's in the county. Um, so if whatever that family's wishes are, it's kind of really what, what goes on those reports. So we've been getting better, and we have, oh, vast majority, over 80 of our coroners signed on to identify suicides when they happen within our report. So our numbers are going up. I think one reason is because we're actually catching them. We're able to pull away from our accidental deaths. And one of the things that um, kind of segue into in 2018, because the way we're reporting youth age 10 to 18, second leading cause of death here in Indiana is suicide. So reporting um, certainly increasing the numbers, but some of the how much is like the drug epidemic and I think social media? How much are those playing into this? I certainly feel like, and and any anybody yeah. else may want to chime in on this. I certainly feel it plays a role, and I think it absolutely plays a role. I think going back into school. Um, but, you know, I graduated in 2001. If you had bullying issues or something didn't go right in school, it usually stopped at school. And you only had an issue with somebody at school. You know, today, nothing stops. That social media goes 24-7. You're getting stuff from individuals you've never even heard of. And they may not live in the same state as you, but they're somebody's third cousin or some friend or somebody followed a post. Um, that, that just con- the constant harassment and availability. And then there's just so much dependency now. On, on these electronic devices. I think there's a good study that had been reported that uh, the introduction of the iPhone, I believe, was 2007. kind of goes co-hand in hand with the um, increase of female uh, youth suicides catching up with male uh, youth suicides. Um, so, you know, I think the technology and, and, and teaching and just the control, I think, um, if you're a parent and you have a child with a cell phone, um, you definitely want to know what's going on in and out of their life. For when somebody could influence me, when I was growing up, they had to come knock on the door, right, or phones picked up by a parent. Now if a kid puts on his headphones to play a video game with his friends, anyone and everyone could come into that chat room and talk with them. They, whatever media, news outlet they're watching, something could pop up. There's no longer this parental filter. Um, so when you open up that the, the, the Internet, right, and, and you allow them to, to surf whatever they want to look at or play whatever games they want, that you're opening up your home to strangers um, and allow them to, to influence your family in any way that, that, that they choose to. So, it, so, it's, so, so for me, that, that's tough. Um, and then there's a lot of this idea that there's, there's none of this internal compass anymore. You know, what are my values? Now my values are controlled by outside entities. These likes on my posts, oh, I'm so worried. How many likes? Nobody liked that. Um, and unfortunately, the things you see that have great, a lot of number of likes are usually the negative things. Um, so, you know, ha- having, I think our youth today struggle with having that internal compass. And a lot of, and a lot of youth today are really looking at what those in- external factors are and allowing them to judge who they are and, and create that. I want to try to fit in this group, so I'm going to go this way versus, you know, be yourself, love yourself, and, and, and continue that path. And I, I think others will, will grow with you. Brad, do you want to talk a little sure. bit about what you say? Yeah, so there's actually some risk factors that increases the likelihood that someone would commit suicide, and that is, of course, having a mental health issue like depression, bipolar disorder, anxiety, but also if they self-injure, that increases the odds that they'll attempt suicide. If they've had prior suicide attempts, that also increases their suicide risks as well. And then substance abuse is the third factor that can dramatically increase someone's likelihood that they would attempt or even complete suicide. I think social media also does play into that as well. I think there's this um, belief among the students I work with anyway that they're missing out on things, that people are posting all of these wonderful places that they've been or parties that they're going to and what they don't recognize is that people are only posting what they want you to see. So they're posting a life that may not be completely accurate. And, of course, Brad, there's a lot of different areas, too, for university students. And we've been talking about uh, social media and how that can keep that going throughout life, I mean, throughout past Mm -hmm. college. But what about the university setting itself? I mean, there's grades and family and maybe finding out who you are. I mean, there are a lot of different areas as well, isn't there? Oh, absolutely. So this is one of the 
the most important uh, phases of life for a lot of students. They're really coming into their own, trying to figure out who they are, how they want to approach the world. But then there's all of these different stressors as well. They're maybe away from their family of origin. Uh, that increases their stress level. Maybe there's a family history of depression, which makes it more likely that they may struggle with that in the future. So there's a lot that they're dealing with. Um, but luckily, there are resources available uh, the health center in particular. Did you want to chime in, Jessica, and just talk about some of the causes as you see them from your perspective? Absolutely. I think that it's really important to remember that suicide is always multi-determined. Um, as Jason and Brad have kind of hinted to, there are multiple reasons that could potentially lead someone to attempt or complete suicide. I think that a major factor and something that a lot of youth are currently dealing with is the media and how media talks about suicide. You know, for example, we have a lot of famous people like Robin Williams and Kate Spade and Anthony Bourdain that have completed suicide and media has not done a great job at reporting on those instances because they've specifically talked about the lethal means that were used when those suicides occurred, which can be very triggering mm -hmm. because youth can read those articles and they can say, I've got that in my house. So it's very important that media is also responsible when they're reporting. You know, for example, we have the very popular series 13 Reasons Why, which a lot of youth are watching. And in the month after 13 Reasons Why there was released, there was a study that explained there was a 29% increase in suicides for ages 10 to 17 because the way that 13 Reasons Why, sh you know, showed the main character completing suicide was graphic and completely unnecessary. And it's something that media cannot do because it has major effects for our youth. So, yes, it's absolutely multi-determined. And I think we also have to keep in mind that as a society, we also have a responsibility to not only be reporting this in a responsible way, but also be talking about suicide in the correct way. A lot of the time, um, we hear committed suicide. And when we say committed suicide, it almost sounds like a crime because it was a crime not so long ago. So instead, we're kind of trying to shift those terms to completed suicide or took his or her own life because it shows that we're educated on the topic. It shows that we're a safe person for that youth to come and talk to or that adult to come and talk to. So I think all of those things are really, really important that we have to keep in mind when talking about this issue. It's interesting you mentioned the media because I know when I was in journalism school, we were always taught if it's a suicide, we don't report it. You don't, you don't mention it. So I'm curious from your perspective how not talking about it, um, it has that contributed? I, yeah, I don't think not talking about it is helpful either. I think that's changed. Yes, um, even absolutely. Absolutely, yeah. Absolutely. But I don't think not talking about it is going to help the situation because I think that just adds to the stigma that is already there surrounding suicide and mental health. I just think it's being responsible when we are talking about it. So, for example, not mentioning the lethal means that were used because we don't want to create that triggering effect, especially for youth who are already struggling. You know, for example, the average suicide suicide crisis episode is plus or minus three weeks. And that doesn't mean that a youth doesn't have multiple suicide crisis episodes what throughout does that, their what do, life. What does that mean? So when the risk is at its highest for suicide, when someone is going through those suicidal ideations, that episode is plus or minus three weeks of time on average. And when that risk is at its highest, it's actually plus or minus five minutes in time when that risk is at its very highest for suicide. So we have to be thinking about, well, what kind of lethal means are in my home? Am I, am I storing medication properly? You know, for example, it was reported that the two most common uh, means for attempting suicide in Indiana for youth were acetaminophen and firearms. So are my firearms stored properly? Uh, you know, is my acetaminophen in one giant bottle or am I actually storing this correctly? So I think it's educating ourselves on those instances and really thinking outside the box on how we can protect our youth, um, especially when it comes to things that are inside the home and the way that media portrays it. So as you uh, going to your previous question, again, I don't think it's not talking about it um, because suicide is there and 
a lot of kids are talking about it and a lot of people are talking about it. We just have to talk about it in a responsible manner. Yeah, there's this terrible myth out there that if you ask someone and if they're thinking of suicide, that you've all of a sudden put the suicidal ideation or suicidal thought in their head and you haven't. All right, if they're not thinking about suicide, they're not thinking about suicide. And by you asking the question, you just made sure that they weren't thinking of suicide. So when I see in the media story, it, for me, being a state suicide prevention coordinator, and I see these young deaths, and it's like, well, okay, this to me, this looks like that this was a young person that has died by suicide. But it just says has died, and it doesn't let me know the, the way that the individual has died. I don't need to know the means. I just want to know, did they die by suicide? Um, and then, so what I end up doing is I take the name from the paper and I go to ISDH and I look at our Indian Violent, uh, violent Death Reporting System and I, and, I, and I ask those questions. Hey, have we gotten our coroner's report for this individual in this county? And then that, that helps me identify that. But uh, to, to be able to see there, it helps also within the community to be able to quickly identify a problem. Because I may be an individual that still reads the paper, and I see that. I just think, man, that's another young death. That, you know, his life was lost. That could have been a, a, an accident. That could have been a motor vehicle accident, or it could have been an intentional death. And you know what? And I want to do something to prevent that. But you know, what can I do? And and I think as those papers stack up and the stories stack up, that's that's how we really get that ball moving. And I don't want to be like a state like in Colorado that requires a very tragic event to see a, a state budget line item for suicide prevention. Um, I think this is something that Hoosiers are, can can galvanize behind and, and really uh, reach out to their representatives and talk to them about mental health in their in their county and their community and the districts that they represent and talk about you know the struggles that they have and, and what can be done to help move that ball forward when we're talking about reducing suicides in the state of Indiana. I really want to dive into the ment- into the mental health part of this, but let's take a break and we can do that in the second half. Today we're talking about mental health and suicide on Noon Edition. You can follow us on Twitter at Noon Edition or call in at 812-855-0811. We'll be right back. From the Milton Met studio at IU's Radio TV building, this is Noon Edition on WFIU. WFIU News covers South Central Indiana and the state throughout the day at WFIUNews.org and on Twitter at WFIU News. You can watch unfiltered video of breaking stories on Facebook Live, and you can get a digest of all the day's top stories delivered to your inbox each afternoon. It's a free and easy way to stay on top of the headlines, plus the in-depth audio, video, and print news stories you can't get anywhere else. Subscribe now at WFIUNews.org. Welcome back to Noon Edition on WFIU. I'm Sarah Whitmire. Bob Salzberg's out today, and Joe Wren is co-hosting with me. Today we're talking about mental health and suicide. You can join the show, 812-855-0811. We have some great guests. Jason Murray is with Family and Social Services Administration with the Statewide Suicide Prevention. He's the coordinator there. Jessica Herzog is the Region 6 Coalition Coordinator with Indiana Youth Services. Brad Stepp is a staff psychologist at Indiana University's Counseling and Psychological Services. And David Radley is a senior scientist at the Commonwealth Fund. David, I wanted to bring you uh, back in. We saw some reports say that suicide and drug overdoses are epidemics in the U.S., but then they affect states in different ways. Can you maybe explain a little bit about why that could be and what would affect different things can happen and and why in different states? Uh, That's absolutely what we found in in this year's report. Um, You know, this idea of deaths of despair, maybe this is a term you've heard, but, you know, it's a term that's that's been used a lot in in sort of the national media over the last few years. And deaths of despair really is just a composite of deaths from suicide, alcohol, and drugs. And, you know, we used to report, as an organization, we used to report this deaths of despair um, but, but this year, we, we wanted to break it into its components so we could see how deaths from each of these causes were affecting uh, people in different states across the country. And I think this was actually one of our most surprising findings because we saw that, that, that deaths from each of these causes really are sort of regional epidemics. 
deaths from drug overdose, for example, are much more um, prevalent in states uh, in the Great Lakes, in the Northeast, um, and in, in, in sort of Kentucky and, 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 you know, and some of these mid-Atlantic states like uh, Delaware or Pennsylvania. Um, states in the central part of the country and in the western parts of the country tend to have you know, higher rates of um, suicide and alcohol-related deaths. Um, our, we, we sort of report the, the, the da- re-report, if you want to think of it that way, data from the CDC, um, where we're looking at, at essentially at, at death certificates, the same vital statistics data that Jason referenced earlier uh, in the show. And so that doesn't tell us a lot about why uh, you know, uh, people in different parts of the country are turning to sort of different uh, pathways to deal with, with whatever mental health uh, crisis that they're facing. Um, we know from other research that, that economic opportunity has a lot to do with um, with deaths, uh, particularly from drug overdose, a lack of eco- specific lack of economic opportunity. Um, but but that said, I, th- I think this is a, a new area where you know I think we're going to make uh, some 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 more investments, uh, research investments to try to understand more about what's going on in different parts of the country and why the rates are so different. You know, in the Pacific Northwest, for example, compared to say the Mid Atlantic. Have you looked at things like gender and race, and if those rates are different? When we're looking at uh, that, that, yeah, that's phase two. Um, you know, we we do know just from from some, some you know high level CDC reporting that uh, rates in, uh, among uh, white white middle aged men uh, are are high. Uh, but I, I think um, there's certainly an opportunity to learn more, and and th- we're actually planning a report right now that's going to take a much deeper look. Uh, and so I, I'd love to come back um, in a couple of months and talk more about some of that some of that stratification. But I assume this data is just so important to you because I assume the more you have, the more that you can take that to different places and, and get more research money and, and, and maybe even more show it in front of more uh, professionals or politicians and, and move forward with it, right? Yeah, I mean, and, and many, we're the funders. We, we, we actually we, we provide research dollars to other researchers to, to do uh, their own research projects. I think what's most important for us uh, as an organization is to call attention to the issues, call attention to, high, to rising suicide rates, call attention to, to, to increasing deaths from drug overdose, um, and, and try to get this on the agenda, to the extent that it's not already, try to get it on the agenda of uh, state policymakers, um, Federal policymakers, um, sort of big P policymakers that actually work in government, but also small P policymakers that work in health systems and, and in, um, in community health systems across the country. And, you know, that's our goal. We want to raise awareness. That's really what we're trying to do here. Mm-hmm. Jason, how much is Indiana investing in mental health? I know your position is relatively new, but in terms of dollars that we're putting behind. So out of the uh, the federal block grant, we've invested about $1.9 million um, into suicide prevention. Uh, $1 million was a huge uh, capacity build for the National Suicide Prevention uh, Crisis Centers. We have five of those here in the state. And at the time that this grant was available, we only had four active. Um, there was a, an article, a, um investigation was done where a phone call was made, and unfortunately it went to a voicemail, and it's just that we didn't have the capacity for the lifeline. And it's not a state-funded. It's uh, funded through a contract with SAMHSA from an out-of-state entity. And I thought, well, that, that information is so important. I want to know their calls. I want to know how many calls they're picking up, and I want to know what that subject matter of those calls are. Um, in order to get some of that data, we need to be able to be funding them and, and, and put that as some sort of, like, reportable and so we've been doing that, um, having biweekly collaborative calls and really expanding out, helping them develop recruitment plans, sustainability plans, um, self-care, a retention plan, because that's absolutely critical. Um, we talk about a workforce shortage within our social work and our mental health um, um, professions. However, what we, one of the things we don't really cover a whole lot is self-care. Because like, as you're taking this on, somebody leaving your office feels great about themselves now, but you've done taking on all the things that they're carrying. And as you continue to do that, you don't have a way of processing that. It starts leading to that burnout, right? So, so it's very important, especially with our crisis call centers, that that, that's, that that is addressed and taken care of and that they're able to continue to do that without, say, state funds. And we are looking to hopefully build several more National Suicide Prevention Lifeline crisis centers in the southern part of the state. Because as of right now, we're only covering 39 of the 92 counties. And two of those four that we are funding have raised their hand and said, we want to take on more counties because now we're at the, the capacity to do so. 
Um, $400,000 of that is trying to build out an entire statewide framework, um, tuition, uh, not tuition, technical assistance uh, type of program to help communities build out their own suicide prevention plan that's direct and, respons- and responsive to their community needs. Um, and being able to have a website that if you're looking for a suicide prevention training, you can actually find one. And if you're looking to host one and provide a training, you have a place where you can you can put that information and folks can easily um, upload it. And then we've changed uh, how our, our website looks for the state. The Indiana Suicide Prevention website is in.gov forward slash ISSP. And there we have a, this awesome tool where you click on it and it you put in your zip code and it tells you where your community mental health center is. It lets you know what hospitals are in your area and also gives you the crisis information. Um, so if you're in need or you have a friend that you're concerned about and you want to get information to, to pass to them or talk to them about, it's a great resource to have. Um, and then we provided $130,000 to the Indiana Suicide Prevention Coalition. Um, Purdue manages that fund, and they've dispersed that funding throughout the 21 active Indiana Suicide Prevention Coalitions. So that's been the first dollars in regards to specific suicide prevention effort that I know that we have made as a state. Uh, so it's the, I've only been in this position for two years, so it's really about getting it going. Stigma stigma's a real thing, and this is this is very tough. And, you know, I I don't think we have a legislator in the state that isn't concerned about our high suicide number. They are. It's just what information do they do they know? Um, I know I didn't know about what a community mental health center was until I became an employee of FSSA. If you don't use it, you don't know about it. And and there's a lot of Hoosiers that don't that don't have a lot of this information, but there's a lot more Hoosiers that do. And they need to make their voices heard. They need to be able to share that information. Um, you know, if you know it, make sure your neighbor knows it. If your neighbor knows it, make sure the teachers know it. Teachers know it. So make sure that their representatives know it so that when these things and when these issues are discussed in the House or in the Senate and, and new laws are passed, um, everybody's on the same page that this is a concern. And we need to look at how do we, uh, how do we leverage, leverage our power to ensure that we have state dollars for suicide prevention. Mm-hmm. I've heard anecdotally um, that the, it's just really difficult to get an appointment with someone like like Brad who provides counseling is there a real shortage of folks I think there is a shortage of mental health clinicians um, I know definitely in Bloomington it can be difficult to schedule an initial appointment with a mental health clinician um, at caps we make ourselves available to as many students as possible um, we also have emergency services so if someone is dealing with suicidal thoughts they can just walk in um, and be seen by a mental health clinician same day uh, our phone number eight one two eight five 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 seven one one there's a clinician available 24 7 so if someone outside of business hours if an IU student is struggling with suicidal thoughts, they can call that number and get assistance. Okay. Mm-hmm. And, and just so everyone remembers, Brad's with Indiana University. Indiana University. And I, did I hear there's a video counseling? Yes, too? we are in the process. Is that new? Of, that is new. Okay. So What's that all about? A, that's been an initiative that we've had for the past couple of years, trying to reach more students and students who may not want to be able to come in. Uh, for an appointment, it may be more convenient for them to be seen uh, by video counseling, but we're still working out some of the issues uh, with that. Sure. Mm-hmm. So just talking more about mental health, when is it that that folks typically start to develop signs of some sort of mental health illness or or something? Is that when they get to college? or I mean, that's not... I think um, age 18 to 22 is probably a very popular time for people who are prone to mental health issues if they're going to develop depression, anxiety, bipolar disorder. The majority of them, I would say, do develop it during that uh, age range. Um, So young adulthood, yeah, that's a pretty big Time frame. And, I th- and I think it's a, it's it's important, and we and we said like mental health issues or mental health illness. It, it's important to, de- to determine it and, and make it clear that we all have mental health and we all have physical health. Good inputs create good outputs. Bad inputs create bad outputs. Um, however, some of us win the genetic lottery, and it doesn't matter what you do; it's just kind of your your predestination. 
um, and, and where you go. And if we can talk about mental health in that type of arena where we're just talking about physical health, that really helps break down the stigma because folks that are in crisis, they, they feel alone. And it's just part naturally where we start isolating ourselves and pushing folks away. And just with anybody listening that may be in that position is that, you know, you're not alone and there's a lot of us out there. Um, and it, the, the, it goes to show that, you know, being able to talk to a friend or being able to talk to a counselor, um, some, some of us require medication to also help us. But doing all of these things, it, we, you know, you're still, you're still, you're still functioning. You're, you're, you're still able to produce society. And this is, this is all of us. We're all in this boat. Um, and is isn't just one group here or one group there. When we talk about those who have mental health that die by suicide, sure, there's a, there's a good percentage of that who has a chronic mental illness um, that we can address. But there's a lot of folks that if, if we just get somebody to talk to or we're able to de-escalate one way or another, and we're okay with that, and we create an environment where we understand you have mental health, I have mental health, this is a bad day, I, I, I want to check on you. I just want to see how you're doing. And when you say fine, I want to know, what do you mean by fine? What do you mean by that? You know, tell me is, I mean, it, it, you're, you've been down for a couple hours. I just want to make sure, you know, if there's anything I can do to help you, I'm here mm-hmm. and, and to have that conversation. So that's, that's my driving goal as a statewide suicide prevention coordinator is that we start talking about mental health just like we talk about physical health. So before mm-hmm. somebody's in crisis, before they no. reach 18 to 22, we should be talking about this with happy, healthy-seeming, everyday people. Mm-hmm. Prevention goes a long way, absolutely. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. And I think it's really important to talk about that. I think when you reach 18 to 22, I think those thoughts or struggling with mental health can absolutely become more difficult. Um, but, you know, there was a study that came out in 2017 that talked about, specifically in Indiana, youth thinking of suicide is the highest in the nation. Those rates mm-hmm. of youth seriously contemplating suicide is the highest across the United States. And youth suicide attempts in Indiana are the second highest in the nation. And when they collect that data, that is ages 10 to 24. So that is well before they hit that 18-year-old mark, that they are struggling with those thoughts of suicide. So I think that as we've been talking about having that conversation and asking our friends if they are okay and really sitting down and being willing to listen. You know, something that I constantly say is that as human beings, we listen to respond. We do not just listen to one another. And one of the greatest gifts we can give someone who is struggling with thoughts of suicide is just listening to them, not not trying to solve their problems. You know, the majority of us are not as amazing as Brad and our counselors at this. It's not our job to counsel them. Um, it's just to listen to them and then connect them with resources that could possibly help. Mm-hmm. We got a question. I think this is probably for David. Um, wondering how do economic factors influence someone's access to mental health care? Do you think you can tackle that uh, one, David? Uh, I'm happy to, to take a stab at it. I, others may want to chime in. Um, I, I think that it's absolutely a factor. There's no question about it. Um, you know, insure, uninsured rates uh, have gone down uh, in Indiana and nationally. Um, over the last few years since the Affordable Care Act passed its, its Medicaid expansions. And, of course, Indiana expanded its Medicaid program. Um, and, and that certainly helped, uh, particularly for low-income individuals um, who would qualify for Medicaid who, who wouldn't have access to, say, employer insurance uh, otherwise. But, but there still seems to be a big issue with being able to access mental health care services. Um, I'm glad this question got asked because I was going to bring this up anyway. So we, in our report, we do also look at a couple of measures of access to mental health care. Um, and, and one of them is sort of the share of, of adults, so 18 and older, who have a self-perceived need for some sort of mental health service who report not getting care. And then the other is the share of individuals who have an actual diagnosed uh, uh, you know, mental health uh, condition who aren't receiving formal counseling or some sort of medication therapy. Um, on the first one, one in four adults who, who, who sort of perceive, they have a self-perceived need for mental health care services, aren't getting it in Indiana. Um, that's higher than the national average. Um, for, for adults who actually have a diagnosed issue who aren't getting, again, counseling or medication therapy, that's 55% of adults in Indiana who have a diagnosed mental health condition aren't getting, or at least 
reported not getting treatment in the last year. Not that they've never gotten it, but they didn't. They reported not getting it in the last year. I think you know that speaks to access barriers. I don't have that measure broken down by income, but clearly, I mean, just in general, people who are lower income have a harder time accessing all different types of healthcare services. And so, if half of adults who need it aren't getting mental health services to begin with, I can only imagine that it's much higher for lower income individuals. And it's very important that, you know, if, if you need the access, if you need the care, that you actually can get the care. That's that's another issue. We talk about the provider shortage. Um, I know there was legislation that was up, and I, I didn't check to see if it had passed, but it talked about an individual who may be in the jail system um, receiving mental health care, but on their transition out being connected within seven days. Well, it, that, that, in theory, that's fantastic. That sounds great. But what ends up happening, uh, coming from an acute inpatient setting um, previously, is that when I uh, in, get a patient into one of our CMHCs or any other provider, it's really more that assessment appointment, and then you'll see a doctor three to four weeks out. Um, it, it, and, it, and it's tough because when we start talking about um, how do we get more providers into the state? Uh, there was great legislation that was just passed this last session regarding nurses. How can licensed nurses from other states, they just can now, they can come in here to Indiana and they can, they can be a nurse. There's no, no new test, no new board, no new pass. They've had 13 years of experience. They're bringing that expertise here to the Hoosier State. For licensed uh, mental health counselors, that's, that's a different story. You could be practicing for 18 years in Ohio. You have a family. You're a professional. Something brings you to Indiana. Maybe you see our crisis and you want to join us, and then you're told you need to go back to grad school, take three classes, almost 1,000 hours of internship. You know, that, that's, that's a huge barrier. Why, what, it doesn't bring us here. And I've had arguments. I've heard, well, why do we want to lower our standards? Or we don't have high standards if those high standards are killing people. So, you know, there, there's, there's a lot of those barriers that are out there that can certainly be addressed at a legislative area, but there's also a lot of, a lot of um, issues that are addressed in legislative areas. And sometimes some issues are a higher priority than others, and it's those that have the most voices behind it that I feel they're going to get the higher priority. So that's why it's important, again, that you reach out to your representatives and, and talk with them about the mental health needs in your community, what's working, what's not working. Because those, that's, that's the very, it's a very important piece, and, you know, it's, it's, it's your, your right as a Hoosier to reach out to those who are representing you and ensure that, that they're representing you properly. Brad, I think it's pretty interesting, and you're, I mean, you're just at IU, and this is something that IU provides f- mm-hmm. for students here. Um, I'm just wondering how, how long it takes to get in if a student wants to, and then also can they just keep coming, or, or what is this like, and what is the university's, sorry, there's a lot of questions, what is the university's <laughs> real, what is, what is a university's obligation for mental health? Um, so we can see students same day for urgent situations, thankfully. We have the capacity to be able to do that. Um, for a student who's coming in and is wanting a quote-unquote regular appointment for counseling, the wait is maybe a couple of weeks. Um, we try to catch, of course, if there's any suicidal thoughts, we move them up much quicker than that, thankfully. But there's a national trend across colleges uh, across the country that is trying to accommodate an influx of students dealing with pretty significant mental health issues. So I think going back to the stigma reduction, that's been wonderful over the past 10 years that I've been working here, the reduction in that stigma. But it's also creating a bottleneck where a lot more people are wanting, feeling like it's okay to come in for services, which is great. It's what we want. But now we're trying to deal with that influx of uh, people an increase um, trying to accommodate all of them it's very difficult um, there are no colleges that have really developed a great solution to that than I'm aware of um, we just try to think more creatively and outside of the box about different programs that we can offer out on campus in addition to doing direct mm-hmm. therapy with students I think it's also important that when we're talking about this issue we have some of the highest rates of youth in poverty in our state. And one of the most moving moments that I had when I was doing education about suicide was I had an African-American mother who came up to me who said, my son was in crisis. He was a teenager. I, you know, it was at the highest rates. He had a weapon. However, I did not feel like I could call police because I was too scared that my son was going to be shot. And 
that really stuck with me because I think that that's an area that we don't really think about a lot, Um, at least that if, you know, we have that privilege, we don't think about it a lot. And we should be thinking about that. Um, So I think it's incredibly important that we're also ensuring that our police officers have the crisis intervention team training so that if they do have an instance where someone is in a mental health crisis, they can go to that scene and they know how to properly respond. Because especially with a lot of people who may be low income or may be uh, suffering through poverty, they may not feel completely safe with calling the police. And I think that CIT training could go a long way with helping uh, those feelings and feeling safe to call them. And that's something Bloomington recently just added was a social worker to their police force. Which I think is huge. Um, I'm currently going through for my master's of social work. And I think that it's so incredibly important that we have social workers that across the board are working with the the police department so that we can better serve those who are in crisis because a lot of the time unfortunately it might not necessarily be the suicide the suicide uh, hotline that's called a lot of the time it's 911 immediately because we don't know the resources out there um, so i think it is really important that we're ensuring all of our law enforcement is trained and that social workers are on that staff to better help that situation you know that that brings up there's a lot of secondary trauma and first responder uh, profession and, you know, in a lot of when it comes to the training and when you're training individuals, they always think about, oh, this training is for how I interact with the individuals, the populations that I serve. But when I go out and I speak to the police departments or sheriff departments and provide the training, my goal is how you all interact with one another. How do you all acknowledge your secondary trauma? It's very rare that I'll go into a, say, a sheriff department and I see an audience of middle-aged 40-year-old sheriff officers and I say second marriage and all their hands almost go up. It's very rare um, because the the mental health and there's such a, a tight stigma where it's like, oh, you know, you got to suck it up or, or you know, hey, come here. Um, alcohol, self-medication has always been the choice. Um, and, and it's always been that first choice. And we're now really starting to break down that stigma. We're starting to show, you know, how how beneficial it is, not just for the, 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 the staff or the department, but for the community to be able to acknowledge that mental health is a thing, just like our physical health, and that the job of a first responder is that. It is a job. It is not who you are. Officers tell me, well, if I have a mental health crisis, they take my badge and gun. That's good. They probably should because you should break away from the job and focus on you. It was hard for me coming out of the Marine Corps to nothing ever lived up to what I felt like my purpose was at the Marine Corps in my first five years coming out because I couldn't see myself as a father or a husband. I was just a Marine without a Marine Corps. They told me once a Marine, always a Marine. But I, I was never able to remove that identity. And until I was able to do that, then things started significantly get better. I started to realize, well, wait a minute, that was just a job. I'm no longer doing the job. That's not who I am. And it's difficult in the first responders because that's day in, day out. I go through this extensive training. Um, They take my badge and my gun. What do I do? Am I less of a person? No, not at all. You're going through things day in, day out, EMS as well, and fire, that you're seeing terrible things day in and day out. It is going to impact you. You are not Superman or Superwoman out there. It does have an effect. And so it's important that the, the higher the executive staff acknowledge that and think about how is it that we can better prepare and better help our, our staff to, to decrease turnover, to in, increase you know, the wellness, not just in their families, but in their community and within their department. Um, but that is a topic that is never really talked about until it's, almost, it's, it's forced upon. Here's a training we're going to talk about, and then they end up sorrowly or happily selecting me to be one of their speakers, and that's the avenue that I go. Um, but it's certainly something that, that's missed in a lot of things. And I think of, like, social workers, case managers, they take on a lot of stuff. And I know when I went through my suicide prevention training as a counselor, it was a PowerPoint slide. And as a student at that time, I thought, why would I need this? Click, 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 print my certificate, easiest, easiest credit I could have got. Mm-hmm. Um, but, you know, now as, as I've gotten older and have an experience, I realized, hey, that was probably one of the most important trainings, and I wish I would have had something more than just a PowerPoint. Mm-hmm. We only have a few minutes la- left, and I do want to save some time to go around the room to talk about what we can be doing, possible solutions, and um, also for people who might be struggling, what we should say. So, um, Brad, I'll, I'll give you the, the floor first. 
Well, I think being able to check in with people, asking them if you suspect that they may be struggling, especially with suicidal thoughts, asking them is probably one of the most important things you could do. Um, that is a myth that was brought up earlier, that if you ask someone about suicide, you're going to put the idea into their head. And research has shown time and time again that is not the case at all. Um, in fact, it's the opposite. It may help save someone's life. Um, so being able to listen to them, like you were saying, is really important as well, and directing them to appropriate resources, whether that be therapists, the National Suicide Hotline, uh, community mental health centers. Um, there's a variety of places you can direct people to. Listening goes a long way, definitely. How about you, Jessica? I think Brad yeah, basically <laughs> nailed that <laughs> answer. I think it is incredibly important that, yes, we are having those conversations, a lot of the time specific to youth because that is the population that I serve. Um, they'll test the waters with you. And they might say, you know, a comment that maybe we wouldn't necessarily think twice about on a, on a daily basis, but they are testing the waters to see how you react to the idea of suicide. And that's how they're kind of opening that door. And a lot of the time um, when we're not educated on this topic, our reaction tends to be with anger. You know, you would never think about doing that or I can't believe you would say something like that. And when we react with anger, that can cause an individual to shut down and think in their heads, you know what, I'm probably not going to talk to you the next time that I'm really struggling with this. So I think it is the listening piece um, and remaining non-judgmental when we are hearing these things uh, because that person probably has a release of so many thoughts because they haven't been able to talk to an individual about this. We're out of time, but I want Jason to give the numbers one more time. Yeah, the National Suicide Prevention Lifeline is 1-800-273-8255. And if you'd rather text and talk to a, talk to someone, I'd ask you to text IN, the capital letters IN, to 741-741. That is the crisis text line. Okay, great. That's all the time we have for today's Noon Edition. I want to thank our guests, Jason Murray, Jessica Herzog, Brad Stepp, and David Radley. For co-host Joe Wren, producer Binta Boothier, and engineer Mike Pashkash, I'm Sarah Whitmire. Have a great weekend. And from the Bloomington Health Foundation, partnering with local organizations and citizens to invest in programs that address our community's health needs. Bloomington Health Foundation, improving health and well-being takes a community. More at bloomhf.org.